When you think of a superhero, you may not imagine a five-foot-two woman with a pen in her hand. That's how lawyer Amal Clooney describes uh, Maria Ressa in the forward to Maria's latest book, How to Stand Up to a Dictator. We've come to know and love Maria for her tireless fight for press freedom and democracy. Her David and Goliath struggles have seen her pitted against former Philippine President Duterte and social media companies like Facebook. She's also, of course, a Nobel Prize laureate. She uh, was one of two journalists awarded the Peace Prize in 2021. Now, for years, her online news site, Rappler, has been battling politically motivated charges that could see her spend the rest of her life in prison. Now, last month... She was acquitted of four tax evasion charges, a huge win, but unfortunately not the end of Maria's legal headaches. I last had the honour of speaking to her back in 2020, and it's marvellous that she's able to talk to us again from Manila. Maria, welcome back, and congratulations on the uh, on the developments in the court case. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me back. I mean, I can't begin to tell you, you know, I always felt the world would turn right side up. You have to have faith. And it isn't over, but it was a huge weight that was lifted. I'd like to start tonight by hearing more about your own story, which, of course, you uh, you talk about in your book. What was it like, Maria, to grow up in two very different worlds, the Philippines and then the U.S.? I think you realize that there isn't only one way of looking at the world. You know, when I I was born in the Philippines, left here when I was 10 years old, right? A year after martial law had been declared by Ferdinand Marcos, who who then stayed on in power for 21 years, I landed in the United States. I could barely speak English. And uh, I was the shortest, only brown kid in my classroom. And I... I I listened far more than I spoke. In fact, my, my teachers reminded me that I didn't speak for a year. Um, I had so much to learn. I think you realize it was great training to be a journalist in the sense that it's not, you realize that there's so many different interpretations of one thing. And, uh, and the way you see the world can change dramatically depending in, on where you're seeing it from. Maria, you describe yourself as being an introvert by nature. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And, Philip, you know, I think it was being a reporter that helped me come out of that. In that sense, I felt like I loved that every day we had to talk to people and every day we had a story to file. I guess it was the people power protest that uh, got you to return to the Philippines, uh, Philippines after graduating from Princeton. I think it was more that I, despite the fact that I m- grew up in, in America, I went to public school and then went on to Princeton, I never felt completely American. And so I was in search of roots. You know, remember during that time, it was 
Roots was one of those, one of the series, the mini series I had watched. And I thought, since I don't feel completely American, since I don't feel at home in my skin, maybe, maybe I really am Filipino. And so I didn't want to be a tourist when I came back to the Philippines, but I couldn't afford it. I just had too many expensive loans to pay. So I applied for a Fulbright fellowship to come here for a year it gave me a task to do. And then when I had been here a few months, I realized how, wow, I am very American. And, and over time, I realized that when I was with Filipinos, I felt very American. But when I was with Americans, <laughs> I felt very Filipino. <laughs> so what was your impression when you returned after 13 years? I like the way you cite T.S. Eliot. Oh, the present moment of the past. You know, I love I love that concept of this. He was talking about it in tradition and the individual talent. T.S. Eliot talks about how, you know, the 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 latest novel you read would be influenced by the fact that you read Shakespeare, but that your appreciation of Shakespeare changes because of the latest novel you read. And I realized that 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 phrase, he was talking in tradition and, and the individual talent. He was writing about novels, but it fits into how you put your life together, how you put memory together, how we put societies together. I mean, look at the Philippines, 36 years after the people power revolt that ousted Ferdinand Marcos, his son, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., is overwhelmingly elected president. Right. He's our new president now. So, yeah, the present moment of the past. You tell a wonderful joke. The, the Philippines say they spent, or Filipinos say they spent 300 years in a convent and 50 years in Hollywood. I love that. Yeah, it, that it's not my original phrase. It was 300 years of colonial, Spanish colonial rule. It comes, it's what made the Philippines Asia's largest Roman Catholic nation. And then 50 years in Hollywood, I actually always joked that we Filipinos take Hollywood seriously, you know. <laughs> so this is the mix. We're quite, I had just returned from Colombia. And it's funny, like, are we more Latin American as, an, as a culture than we are um, Asian? And in, in many ways, you could argue that we are. I know how important music has been to you, and uh, that's one of the reasons, I guess, that you majored in theatre and dance at Princeton. What persuaded you to switch to journalism? You know, I, um, it was a certificate in theatre and dance, and part of the reason I did was because these things that we tend to, the arts, we tend to downplay them, but they're really the way true communication happens. They're how we fit concepts and feelings um, into into a way of a way of communication that goes beyond words. I think that was the first the first part. How I fell into journalism was really looking for identity. You know, I came in, my Fulbright was in political theater. I had written my my senior thesis in Princeton was uh an, an original play that we we premiered in in theater on team there and then took on to the international fringe festival in edinburgh scotland and then 
when I came here, I was trying to understand what being Filipino meant. And I got to say, it's an ongoing, you know, I still continue try, to try to do that. But it's in so many ways as journalists, right? We want things pegged into, you know, even if it's a square peg, we, pe we push it into a round <laughs> hole because we have a system, right? It's a method, it's a methodology for how we can compact reality and communicate rules, standards and ethics. But the world doesn't fit that way. And neither does our biology. And since people behave based on our emotions, more than we do our rational thinking, it, it's a dilemma for us. <laughs> Maria, I'd forgotten about your time at CNN. Would you be a darling and tell the listeners about your first stand-up report for CNN? Oh, my God. <laughs> You're going to make me. I don't know. I don't believe. I can't believe I wrote it. But, um, you know, I was so bad at this. So I had never. What, what kind of training do you get in television? I got to tell you what it was like at CNN. Um, they hired me and then told me to do a what what the BBC would say, a piece to camera, a stand-up. So I did a stand-up and then I sent it to my boss. At that point, it was like two weeks to get the tape back and forth, right? And um, he sends it back. He said, you look 16. I was not 16. <laughs> you look 16. So go and put a suit on, get makeup on, and drink brandy to lower your voice. <laughs> and I think in the next stand-up, I really like... I think I, I got drunk before I even finished <laughs> a decent one. Um, but it is a really unnatural way of being natural. That was part of my biggest dilemma at the beginning of trying to be a television reporter. Because I felt like, you know, you kind of have to put on this facade of, to me, it felt like arrogance because it went against the way I had created myself. So... And, and over time, it also shaped me, I guess. I suppose it helped with Duterte, you know. Maria, let's skip forward a bit. You were heading up uh, CNN's Jakarta Bureau when 9-11 happened, and you start to investigate the growth of terrorist groups in Southeast Asia. This was your first yeah. real insight into the powers of social networks, wasn't it? It was because I was trying to understand, uh, along with the rest of the world, you know, what would make a, a person kill themselves in these suicide bombings, being a hijacker. At the beginning of 9-11, we all focused on the hijackers, but this was a process of radicalization. But I think there's one earlier lesson than that in from Indonesia, which was from the time of Suharto, you know, Suharto had been in power for almost 32 years. And when he fell, it was also um, accompanied with violence in Jakarta. And then beyond that, for almost four years after that, I would be going city to city in the 27 provinces. And I would be talking about one group trying to kill another. And it would be, you know, reporting on religious violence, ethnic violence, separatist violence, political violence, and economic violence. It was all there. And it was us against them always. But what Indonesia taught me during that time period is how wonderfully smart and caring and empathetic people can turn into a mob. And I learned that in these places like Ambon, which is 50% Christian, 50% Muslim, lived in harmony for centuries. And all of a sudden, 
because of instigators, then they always point to each other. They say, you know, the phrase in Indonesian is they they point to it. It was the people from outside. They went into conflict and almost 10,000 people were killed in a short period of time. So that mob mentality, you know, how can this happen? How can good people turn evil? That was Indonesia's first lesson to me. The second was the radicalization. Because Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim population. That was where I I was when 9-11, when the, the World Trade Centers collapsed. Except there was a memory for me of an intelligence document, police documents interrogating probably what was one of the first pilots recruited by Al-Qaeda. His name was Abdul Haki Murad, and he had been arrested in the Philippines in 1995. And that triggered he in his document, those documents, he talked about a plot to and this is a direct quote, hijack commercial planes and crash them into buildings. And he named for these police investigators, he named the World Trade Center, he named the Pentagon, he named other buildings that didn't go down the Transamerica building in in San Francisco, um, several others. And that was the memory I pulled out. And that evening, I asked CNN to send me to Manila, where I landed the next day. When social media sites like uh, Facebook started to uh, come on the scene, you were understandably optimistic about how they could be used for good, weren't you? Because of we saw that in the Arab Spring. Yes, absolutely. In 2011, you know, it was a combination of students, activists, and they were able, they were more powerful. They were able to have the Arab Spring. But what I didn't realize was shortly after that, it became the Arab winter. In the Philippines in 2011, 2012, which was when we began Rappler, it was the idea again of using social media for social good. And the idea that technology could actually help jumpstart development, those were front and center of the reason we created Rappler. So you could say, I really drank the Kool-Aid. And part of the reason Facebook had such wide reach in the Philippines was because Rappler was an active advocate for students. We would go to different universities to talk about how you could use social media for social change. Of course, we were among its first victims. Of course, Duterte becomes the first politician to successfully use Facebook to win the presidency. You realise that it's a threat to democracy, particularly in your own country. Yes, within, it's funny, it was within a few months. And again, it reminded me of, you know, the Asian financial crisis in Indonesia when the rupiah went from 2,400 to the dollar to 14,000 to the dollar in less than two weeks, right? Here, it's that same kind of dramatic change. Before the election of Duterte, I could never have thought that social media could be used to control to control people, that it could actually turn into a dictatorship, that it was a better dictator's tool. And yet, the tools that I thought would be giving greater empowerment was precisely what was used to tear down reality, to shift our reality, to turn everything upside down. Because as I later found out, lies spread faster than really boring facts on these social media platforms because you keep scrolling right, for a business reason, more profit for those platforms, um, 
unfortunately, greater harms for democracies. Filipinos almost hold the world record for, uh, you know, videos on YouTube, and uh, and ninety seven percent of the country's citizens were pretty quickly on Facebook. That's now a hundred percent. Believe it or not, it's a hundred percent of Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook, and that was by twenty eighteen, right? Which is when the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke. By January twenty eighteen, Facebook was changing its algorithms to push news away from its news feed. And news organizations all around the world felt that, right? A massive drop in traffic. Uh, Some in Slovakia went down to a drop of up to 60%. Most news groups felt a drop of about 20%. Um, But, you know, having said that, here we are today, these platforms are still the distribution platforms for news, and we're competing against lies. Of course, you tried so hard to warn Facebook, but uh, to no avail. In the book, you say this, when you are trying to change a system, it fights back. How true that is. Extremely true. I mean, one of that's in the chapter on trying to reform the largest network in the Philippines, ABS-CBN. I was initially, that was when I decided to come home to make the Philippines my home. And my task was to make this news organization of about a thousand journalists. The total network has 4,000 people, 5,000 people at that time, a market cap of about $450 million to make it world-class. And I realized changing culture, when you try to do this, even if you're the top official, it fights back. And the things that I encountered in the Duterte administration, I ran into these same problems inside a private network. It was just easier to deal with corruption, you know, trying to get rid of, of these kinds of patronage driven politics to, to outside money. All of these things were there. They were great early lessons for me. Journalists in Australia think they've, they've got got it tough, but you started wearing a bulletproof vest on the road and uh, you'd keep a go bag with you in case you got arrested again with spare clothes and cash for bail. Thank God that time period is past. You know, there was that there was this period of uncertainty that this country had never been in since before martial law was declared. Um, It was uncertain what all the cases, I mean, in 2018, there were 14 investigations for Rappler. Uh, In 2019, I had 10 arrest warrants that were filed against me. And then then I started getting convictions. Well, I have one conviction now. But simultaneously, the number of cases also began to decrease, right? So we now have, we had seven cases, seven criminal charges that I was facing. And as of last month, I lost four of them. So I have three left. So I guess it goes back and forth, right? Up and down. It's a massive roller coaster. I'm talking to the marvellous Maria Ressa, CEO, co-founder and president of Rappler about her memoir, How to Stand Up to a Dictator. So some wins, but nonetheless, you still face a highly, well, problematic future, don't you? Still could be the rest of my life in jail, but I got to say, you know, last month was the beginning of turning the world right side up. It truly seems like um, it's so funny that the 
the bar of governance was so low before the election of Marcos, of President Marcos. And now that he's in his administration is in power, he spent more time in his first hundred days traveling outside than any other president. He cares about the rest of the world. He cares about the economy. These are his two things. Um, and so I hope that that means that there will be greater accountability. I certainly know the lesson of how shaky that can be. Marcos Jr., who we know, of course, as Bong Bong, uses social media pretty cleverly, doesn't he, particularly to rewrite family history. You know, the Marcoses, when you ask them, will always deny it. And yet we have evidence in the data. Um, these information operations that literally changed our history in front of our eyes began in 2014. Changing Marcos from a pariah, a kleptocrat, that name to now being the best leader we supposedly this country has ever had. So, yes, information operation. This is the perfect example of Milan Kundera, that Milan Kundera quote, you know, the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. We forgot and we overwhelmingly elected Marcos Jr. Maria, how many have... How many Filipinos died during the Duterte regime? No one knows for sure. That's the first casualty in our battle for facts. You know, if you look at it now, um, the police actually will admit to a number that is far less than what the, org the institutions in the past, in 2017, had admitted to. So they claim it's like about... 6,000 people killed in these police operations in extrajudicial killings. And yet you go, you talk to human rights activists, the former head of the Philippine Commission on Human Rights as, as late as December, 2018, or as early as December, 2018, he put the number at 27,000 people. Right? So how many people really were killed? Yet you never seriously considered leaving the Philippines for good. No, I can't. I mean, Philip, you know, that Rappler was four of us co-founded this this company, and and Rappler has had a massive ripple effect in the Philippines. I would never do anything when my nation is in a battle for democracy to weaken the fight for democracy. Right, this time matters, and I think that you know I couldn't. I certainly couldn't have done this alone. My other three co-founders are incredible women, and you know we will hold the line. You could have, of course, jumped bail, but that would have made the government and the government's lies a reality. Exactly, we hold the moral high ground now, and you know I still have faith. I mean, the Philippines is not North Korea. It's not Russia. It's not Iran. <laughs> I'm knocking on wood, you know, and, and I hope it's, it's a little bit like a high stakes game of chicken, but I got to believe the world will turn right side up. It's not just the Philippines. We've seen social media manipulation playing a leading hand, well, in Brexit, the January 6th capital riots in the US, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and you warned yes. that things should get worse. Yes, and it did. Um, I think globally, it is the same, you know, the cascading failures of democracy started with information, with the corruption of our information ecosystem. 
it was getting bad before because you had illiberal leaders being elected democratically. But when our information ecosystem was, when the new gatekeepers became the technology companies and they did not make a distinction between fact and fiction, that accelerated everything. I think we can still win this, but it depends on getting the, I mean, who could change this immediately? Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, he's one of the dictators I talk about in the book, right? I mean, if you talk about it, who is the who has the more power as a dictator, Duterte or Zuckerberg? Zuckerberg. And of, <laughs> and of course, one of the consequences is we elect illiberal leaders democratically and they corrupt the institutions from within. Correct. And they not only crush the institutions of democracy themselves, they also then globally, geopolitically ally together. And this is part of what the United Nations, you know, the 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 you the UN, you know, all of the UN services as well as the EU, they've got to realize that when you have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization being formed by China and Russia, and then you have Iran, Turkey, and Myanmar joining, that happened September last year. This is something new, and we must accelerate change to protect democracy. I'm going to hold your book up to the microphone so everyone can see it. Its title is How to Stand Up to a Dictator, and it's about holding the line. Some advice to all of us, please. You really don't know who you are until you're forced to fight for it. And I think for every freedom-loving citizen, this is the time for us to protect democracy, to protect the rights. These ideas that we said we live by, they're now challenged. And the battle is not far from you. In fact, in the Nobel lecture, I said it was a an individual battle for integrity. It is an individual battle for democracy. And it is happening on social media. Let's not look away. Each one of us must win that battle. Just a, a final question. Any chance that uh, Duterte might be held to account under the new government? I would say TBD, you know, President Marcos, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, has said that it would continue the investigations into the drug war. It the, it moves quite slowly. Marcos's administration has said that it would not entertain this, but the, in, the investigations are ongoing. I think, you know, I have to have faith again. I believe you take every step and every step will take you in a either the same direction or a different direction. We've shifted slightly. The bar of governance was so low that now seems significantly better. Let's see. Maria, it's always a privilege to talk to you. Maria Ressa, CEO, co-founder, president of the digital news site Rappler and, yes, a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. The book, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, published by Penguin, Random House. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.